Hi, guys. Welcome back. Great to be with you again. Uh, my name is Richard Sachs. I'm on Lost Arts Radio, for those of you who are here for the first time. And we've got a really great guest tonight that I'm really happy to have with us. And where this came from, is, the man's name is Jordan Mason, and he's a political consultant. And I was looking for somebody who could talk intelligently and informatively on the issue of central bank digital currencies, because they're many attacks being leveled against not only America, but humanity in general right now. And one of them that a lot of people don't understand, because we've been taught that economics is too hard to understand anybody anyway, and you have to be an expert. And it's just really complex. And the truth is that economics, like everything else, boils down to common sense. And there's a lot of simple basics of it that anybody can understand. And right now, what happens in uh, Congress and the banking system is really critical for the future of humanity, and in particular, free speech and freedom of all kinds of movement and transactions and everything. So without going too far into it yet, I want to introduce our political consultant, Jordan Mason. Welcome, and thanks for being here. And why don't we start by saying, um, you know, what people are thinking, what's a political consultant? Is that a lobbyist or what? And so I've, I've filled a lot of different uh, shoes and worn a number of different hats. I've been a campaign manager. I've been a lobbyist for the National Association of Gun Rights. I've worked down in Arizona during uh, a particular audit. Um, so, yeah, no, I've done a number of different things. But ultimately, uh, the way I tell people is uh, my calling by God was to fight for liberty and freedom in the United States of America. And uh, I do that to my fullest ability. Right. And you're not just saying that as a slogan. You actually feel that way and you're motivated by it. Yeah, absolutely. I've uh, ironically, I've tried to run away from it a time or two and kind of like Joan and the whale, I've been spit right, right back to it. Right, right. Yeah, that's great, because I think it's important to believe that or understand that whichever political party you end up working under the name of, they both have serious problems. And, you know, <laughs> Right now, you know, to put it simply, the Republicans are saying a lot of things, some of which are good, and specializing in mostly doing nothing. And the Democrats are coming right out and espousing satanic agendas. So neither one of them is setting a wonderful example, and you're trying to bring some reality back to it, it sounds like. Right, right. Yeah, and I would say that, uh, you know, we, uh, and I think there's a handful of Republicans that really do believe in you know, constitutional-based government. 
Um, right. And we find ourselves to be the enemy of both the Democrats and the Republicans more often than not. It's a good sign. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It tends to be, um, you know, and that's, that's kind of, it's obviously one of the issues that we've run into recently is, uh, you know, some of that uh, constitutional pushback and forth. So why, why is this CBDC thing of any importance to freedom and what does it mean? You know, because sure. most people, I don't think, have any idea what CBDC means. Sure. So, you know, a CBDC is a, it's a central bank digital currency. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, this is a good way to say it, but the International Monetary Fund Managing Director, Bo Lee, when he was speaking at the International Monetary Fund and World Bank annual meeting last fall, really described this well. And I, I think when I quote him here, he said a CBDC can allow government agencies and private sector players to program to create smart contracts to allow targeted policy functions. For example, welfare payments. For example, consumption coupons, for example, food stamps. By programming CBDC, that money can be precisely targeted for what kind of people can own and for what kind of use this money can be utilized, for example, for food. So in other words, uh, a, a good way of describing this is this would allow the Federal Reserve, for example, if you were on food stamps, but they also knew you were a diabetic, uh, right. you couldn't buy anything with sugar. And they could restrict you from being able to purchase anything with sugar. Right. So you no longer would own or have possession of your money. It would be controlled by the Federal Reserve and you would be allowed to basically uh, use it, use it temporarily with their permission. What about Social Security? Could it be tied to that? Absolutely. I mean, you know, we're talking about money, so. Uh, a CBDC is a replacement for a, a medium of exchange. So it would involve everything from right. your homeownership to uh, groceries, to your gas, to your social security payment, welfare, you name it. It is, you know, we're talking about a form of money. So it's the opposite of cash, basically. It's the- it is the opposite of cash. Well, ironically, and this is one of the arguments that they've made, and it's a fair point. Uh, you know, currently there's about, according to the Federal Reserve, there's about uh, $2.2 trillion of actual mm. hard physical currency, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's roughly $15.76 trillion, uh, on the account ledgers. So roughly speaking, about 90% of U.S. currency is all digital. It's, uh, it's just right. zeros and ones on a computer somewhere. But there's a difference between that oh, and the post. Right. Because like, you know, for example, I have, uh, for example, here I have a debit card, but I also have, um, you know, for example, cash. So the cash, mm-hmm. I can hold this. And if I give this to you, then that's a fair transaction. Or if I use this, I have to authorize you to take the money off of this, the zeros and ones. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the CBDC, um, I'm not the one that necessarily controls the transaction. You know, Steve Forbes talked a little bit about how some of the proponents of CBDC have talked about helicopter drops of cash. So, like, you know, for example, the COVID payments to, you know, citizens in the United States, they could just inject that money directly into your accounts. Um, But the opposite is also true, right, that they could also withdraw money from your accounts Um, because, again, you don't necessarily control it. And, And I think that's. That's ultimately what this is really about, is it's about control. Um, 
And, and that, I mean, that is the constant battle that we're fighting all the time is, you know, control. Yeah. And the example that you gave with the diabetic being forced not to buy sugar, uh, that's from some kind of a misguided uh, desire to make the diabetic healthier, right? But what if the desire was to do something nefarious for the sake of evil, for example, forcing you to take a poison injection? Could they right. say ultimately that, well, you can have your Social Security and you can have all these payments from third parties and everything, no problem, it's freedom, as long as you have all the injections and can prove it? Right, right, right. And, and you know, this is where it's really disturbing is when you look at these ESG policies or environmental, social and good governance policies that they're trying to implement mm-hmm. um, along with this. And, you know, when you're also talking about a vaccine passport, you know, these are things that kind of interlock and, and ultimately they all kind of fit together like puzzle pieces. And ultimately it leads to a totalitarian form of government without even changing your form of government. Um right. And I think that's what's really so fundamentally disturbing. You know, I, I will say this, you know, I, I truly believe that when you have, um, you know, when you have a good argument, um, it's easy to defend. And when you have a bad argument, eventually it breaks down to the truth. And one of the things that we saw um, with the proponents uh, on, you know, this particular issue they came out and they publicly said that they had to change the definition of money, which is what the UCC 2022 amendments do. And the argument was, and I've seen this in several states now, and they, they say because other countries have adopted Bitcoin as legal tender, we don't mm-hmm. want to let other countries define what money is, right, under our state laws. But then they'll for, go on for, later. For us or for them? For, for us, right? We don't want them to allow a foreign country to adopt you know, Bitcoin, which then would make us accept that as currency, right? And what's interesting to me, though, is then later they'll come back and say, well, because two countries have already adopted CBDCs and others are likely to follow, and this is a direct quote from, you know, one of the proponents, the Uh UCC needs rules to provide certainty transactions, and we need to, we must include CBDCs because it was adopted by foreign countries. So in other words, they're arguing that they exclude cryptocurrencies because it was adopted by a foreign country, but argue they must include a CBDC because it was adopted by foreign countries. Well, look, the difference is, is it's about control, right? A cryptocurrency uh, like Bitcoin is actually controlled by the individual, right? It is a decentralized form of banking, right? Which has kind of revolutionized, you know, finance globally. It may on the be other about hand, the only crypto that's like that, too. Say again? It may be about the only one of the cryptos that's actually decentralized like that, too. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of different ones that have come online recently that are also decentralized. But, you know, a central bank Good. digital currency, I mean, it's in the name. It's centralized, right? It's not decentralized. Right. It's centralized. And yeah. so, you know, I think this is almost akin to the fight between the USSR, the Soviet Union, right? A central planning, central control, and uh-huh. the Western democracies of America and the, you know, allied forces of a decentralized right. individual, you know, rights type structure. Right. And you were saying that the government was saying that just because El Salvador is, is recognizing Bitcoin, they don't right. want to force us to have the same money, but... I think a lot of the problem in understanding comes from the use of the word us. Right. You know, there's the government, which is the very small 
group of individuals that that is authorized to control certain things. And in the U.S., that's supposed to be super limited for for a very good reason. And then there's the people of the country who are America, the people who or any other country who live there, the people and the resources of the country. They're not the government. So if the government does something crazy, it's not the the country that's doing it. It's a group of criminals that have hijacked it in most cases, including this one. So when you talk about what money has to be recognized as for the government in the U.S., isn't that supposed to be gold and silver? Right. Well, yeah. So you're referring to Article 1, Section 10 of the U.S. Constitution, uh, also known as the coinage uh, clause. And it specifically refers to gold and silver coins to pay debt. Uh-huh. And, and there, there have been uh, some arguments. To- it doesn't say what the people can use as money. Yeah. So I was just saying that you're obviously referring to Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution dealing with the coinage clause. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think you're right. There have been obviously the legal tender cases that went before the Supreme Court allowing for paper money. Uh, to be considered a form of currency or money in the United States. But, um, you know, ultimately, I think it's clear what our founding fathers intended, and they never, never, you know, intended for a uh, central bank. Uh, that was something that a lot of our founding fathers spoke out against. But right. um, especially the idea of a fiat currency instead of a backed currency uh, yeah. was something that was highly debated back then as well. Right. Andrew Jackson fought to get rid of the central bank and succeeded at one point, but then they brought in the Federal Reserve later on. There were several attempts. Right. Yeah, 1919. The other thing I was saying before we got cut off is that there are certain restrictions of what the federal government in the U.S. is supposed to use, which is gold and silver, and that it can't authorize anything else. But it doesn't restrict what the people can use as money. Right. Right. Totally different. Absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, if you even read, you know, especially like the journals or the Federalist Papers, I mean, there's a lot of discussion about how trade between, you know, the states occurred. Um, And, you know, people used all sorts of different things for a medium of exchange back then. Right. Right. And there are a lot of people that say contract law puts that above other laws, your ability to make an agreement with another individual. I, what, that's a that's a pretty yeah, astounding that, statement. I'm yeah, not sure if I quite understand what you're saying. Long, long discussion, but the basis of contract law is that um, you can't uh, you can't invalidate a, co- a contract with a uh, city or state law or federal. Oh, sure. Law yep. Unless yep. it's something unless it's something intrinsically illegal. Yep, absolutely. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, if my memory serves me right, I think that's actually Article 1, Section 8, and it deals with the obligation of contract. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what I'm trying to refer to. Yeah, as a matter of fact, man, my memory is serving me well, yep. Yeah, that's great. Um, (laughs) So basically, it's, it's simply the idea that any transaction using money from the federal system would be able to be vetoed by the government or or enforced right you know there was a great quote actually and you know there's there's i i really focused on the money thing because that is so foundational Mm -hmm. but there's there's a number of other aspects to this that are, are problematic and justin haskins from the heartland institute 
He wrote an article in Fox News uh, entitled um, that politicians are quietly preparing for a digital dollar. It's not good for your freedom. And in that, he points out a really critical point of this UCC bill where uh, he points out Section 45. And in that, it talks about control of electronic money. And then it goes on to say a power is exclusive even if the electronic money, a record attached to or logically associated with the electronic money, or a system in which the electronic money is recorded, limits the use of the electronic money or has a protocol program to cause a change, included a transfer or loss of control. Think about that for a second. I mean, that's pretty stark, right? They're flat out saying, even though it's your money, right? If it's a part of this system, you may lose all control over it in this system. Right. I mean, that's language that is is really fundamentally disturbing and without qualifying it, uh, really does open up the legal door for a bank or the Federal Reserve to basically ca- take control of your assets and your money um, from there on out. Where is that language? That's under Section 45 of the UCC bill. Um, and if we pull this up, I mean, I could actually pull up your guys' bill as well. I mean, they're almost identical yeah. for the most part. Um but yeah, that was in section 45 of ours, which was in, uh, HB or House Bill 1130 uh, 93 here in South Dakota. And I would take a gander here. Um, looks like yours is. When you say yours, are you referring to an Arizona bill? Yeah. Yep. Uh, yours is HB 2770 currently. So this is happening in multiple states. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what I'm saying. Interesting. So there's a move in the state governments that's backing up the federal push for CBDCs, right? Right. Well, so let me back up and explain what the UCC is. So the UCC is the Uniform Commercial Code, which was first published in 1952 and is propagated by the Uniform Law Commission. Now, originally, this was a pretty good intentioned uh, idea to say that the states needed to get together to write laws that they didn't really want the federal government to dictate. Um, but what's interesting is as the CBDC uh, started to roll out, um, you know, we, we started to see, um, you know, documentation, like in the fall of 2020, there was a paper called the Central Bank Digital Currencies and Law written by Stephen Schwartz. And you can find this article on the New York Federal Reserve website, and this was written in September 1st of 2020. So right at the peak of the pandemic, right? The, or pandemic, uh, however you prefer. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he, he says in that document, the UCC is designed for wholesale wire transfers. It should, at least with certain consumer protection provisions discussed below, provide a suitable regulatory framework for retail CBDC transactions. So, I mean, as far back as 2020, Right. We have legal experts associated with not only the Federal Reserve, but also the Uniform Law Commission talking about using what is a fundamental basis of commercial law in the United States. Right. To use that as a vehicle to introduce a definition that is uh, suitable to a CBDC. And so that that is what we're seeing is. Um, and, you know, I don't know if you saw, but uh, Congressman uh, Warren Davidson uh, from Ohio wrote a letter and he he uh, rightfully so points out that about the time that president joe biden issued his executive order on the cbdc's 
Uh is about the time that the Uniform Law Commission suddenly came back and said, hey, we have an idea. We're going to redefine money. And it it does look awfully suspicious that this seems to be a coordinated event, um, you know, between not only the U.S. federal government, but a nonprofit institution that has been for the longest period supposed to advocate for states' rights and seems to, if anything, be advocating for the federal government to take over uh, in a financial way that's that's really detrimental to our freedom. What's the status at the present time with CBDCs and how close it is to being becoming law? So, I mean, here's what we do know. Right now, we know that FedNow, which is the, uh, that would be like the wholesale bank-to-bank, uh, central bank digital currency um, mm-hmm. system, that is currently planned to roll out by July. Uh, according to the Federal Reserve. Now, right now, FedCoin, which is the uh, U.S. Federal Reserve's uh, idea for a, a U.S. CBDC, that has not been currently authorized by Congress, which is great, and there's an active effort to actually make it illegal. Um, but unfortunately, it, it back to <laughs> back to both Republicans and Democrats, um, there's mm-hmm. a lot of pushback. And obviously, you know, there's there's some players that they're they're really trying to roll this in. Um, so there's a lot of money changing hands and a lot of uh, a lot of pressure. What's your understanding of where in general, in this case and, and overall, the movement away from freedom and away from constitutional government is coming from? Where, where do you think that's originating? Well, so I really believe that the, you know, and I, I understand that there are people they want to really believe that people are innately good. Um, but I do believe there are people out there that they truly do not believe in a constitutional republic. They don't believe in that form of government. Um, I've met people that have, they're self-proclaimed communists, right? They really believe that communism is a good way to go, both from a uh, economic standpoint and also from a political standpoint, right? Centralized planning. They think the government will cure all their ills. Right. And, and this is antithetical to our form of government, right? We're, we're, we're a government of the people, right? Where, uh, government, you know, governments are instituted among men to secure these rights. That's a direct quote, right? Uh, from our, our founding documents. But these people really want the government to control your everyday lives. And so I, I think they believe that what they're doing is good. That's why they fight passionately, right? And I just, you know, I see a, a fundamental, you know, they see forms of our freedom as a threat to a better way of life. Um, and I think that is yeah. the perspective that they hold. Yeah. Yeah, I've come to a similar conclusion, but separated in layers. So at the top, I think there are people in control on a global scale that are not doing it for our good. They're not confused. They're, they're totally devoted to darkness and evil and suffering and destruction. But there are billions or at least millions under them that are obeying with the understanding that you just said that they're doing this for our protection and our good. And we need bigger government and more control over human lives because I mean, how else are you going to get? all these good things enacted when people are trying to do all these bad things in the name of freedom and they become the enforcers, right? Well, Richard, I mean, what a great example. I mean, let's look at the Patriot Act, right? 2001, we had 
uh, Republicans, we had independents, we had Democrats saying, hey, look, we got to give up a little bit of liberty for security, right? I mean, it, it was almost right from the mouth of Benjamin Franklin in his warning in 1796 in his Poor Richard's Almanac, right, that the, those that are willing to give up liberty for security deserve neither. Um, right. and, and, you know, wow, how we have sown those seeds. Um, but, you know, I remember a day that you could go in the airport without going through a metal detector, without being patted <laughs> down, without being unreasonably violated of your Fourth and Fifth Amendment rights. Yeah. Um, but now we have ebbed away at our constitutional basis, our, our first one through ten Bill of Rights so fundamentally. And, you know, the Patriot Act really was an accelerant to justify that for exactly the reason you're saying. Isn't it interesting how they chose the name, too? Yeah, it's patriotism, right? It's it patriotism to give up your rights. Yeah, all these wonderful names. Do you I think, remember Freedom Fries, by the way? Freedom Fried? Freedom Fries, right? When when the French, oh, we were upset at them, so we called them Freedom Fries instead of French yeah, Fries. Yeah, really exciting. <laughs> uh, but I think part of it's a tribute to the educational system that we've had for many decades in this country that doesn't teach anything about the idealistic principles that the country was founded on. I I personally think it's a misnomer to say that the American education system has anything to do with education. Um, and, and I'll, I'll just, I'll, right. I'll, I'll substantiate that a little bit further, but do you really believe that we came back from World War II and started calling our our very earliest classes, kindergarten, which is a German word that literally translates to a child, you know, a, a garden of children, right? right. That's a rough translation. Um, and we came back where all of a sudden we started adopting like our, our classrooms even, right? We had desks that sat higher. We had, you know, the pupils desk that sat lower in rows to face right. the authority figure almost right out of the, the writings of Joseph Goebbels. Um, everything, everything is a total coincidence, as you know. And right. It's, it, it goes right along with homeland security and a whole bunch of other stuff. Like I'm sorry. That. Did you say fatherland security or homeland security? I, I didn't catch that. You could use either one, I think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's unbelievable how much we've repeated history. And I mean, you know, I'm really happy to see, and you know, you talk about bipartisan. Um, you know, mess ups. I'm even seeing now bipartisan, you know, awakenings, right? We have Dr. Naomi yeah. Wolf on one hand who yeah, served under. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think it's great that we have, you know, Daniel Horowitz, a Republican, and, and Dr. Yeah. Naomi Wolf, who served under, you know, William Jefferson Clinton's presidency, writing a yeah. book about the rise of the Fourth Reich. Yeah. And the former representative from Hawaii. What's her name? Um, or was she a senator? I'm, I'm blanking. I'm sorry. You know, you know the lady I'm talking about. I think I do, but I, I unfortunately using her name ten minutes ago. Anyway, she's made a lot of major changes and yeah. renou- renounced the Democrat Party completely. Oh, and, Tulsi Gabbard. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> and you know, a lot of the not only the, the fake education system, but the media is responsible for educating the public against freedom as well, I think, right? Well, I mean, you know, a lot of people don't know this name, but, you know, uh, you know, Edward, uh, Edward Bernays, or I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Edward Bernays. Bernays, uh, Yeah, talking about the father of propaganda. I mean, he talked about in depth about how to use 
uh, the media to basically propagandize and brainwash uh, people. Um, you know, there's a reason that we have eggs and bacon for breakfast today, and it's a well-documented example of how he used, uh, you know, different disparate pieces of information to put together a news clip to make it normalized. And I mean, keep in mind, prior to that, we, we ate, you know, margarine and toast and, you know, a light breakfast that was an English breakfast. Um, But he sold eggs and bacon and that became the new norm. So now, I mean, from preschool all the way up to PhD classes and public health classes and medical training and everything like that, it's blind trust of authority. And more control. I mean, you know, I mean, part of what you're touching on too is nobody's using basic logic. I mean, logic and rhetoric aren't even taught. So the problem is, is the the majority of the population doesn't even see how they're being misled. No, you're supposed to memorize. That's how you learn now. Right. Instead of sitting back and having a Socratic discussion to ask questions to discover the actual truth, it goes along with emotional outrage as well. If you're really upset, when you memorize things, you don't want to discuss it. You just right. want to retaliate. Right. Right. So got all these groups trying to kill each other at the moment while the rulers quietly move forward with the enslavement process. Well, and I mean, quite successful at this point. It's funny, when I got out of the military, I served four years in the U.S. Navy. And when I got back home, I remember I was walking past our local jail. And uh, I happened to be wearing, you know, my outfit or whatever because i was headed down to the va and just finishing up my final stuff and he said you know thank you for our service and you know lots of people talking about freedom and everything and as i was walking down the street i kept looking up at that jail thinking we imprison more people per capita at per record than any other country in the world how can we be so free right right or is it really freedom and then there's the issue of democracy, which is always being cited on the news broadcasts versus Republic. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about the difference between those, right? Well, the tyranny of the majority in a civilized government, if you ask me. Yeah, you know, neither one is really guaranteed to be good, depending on the consciousness of the people. Because if you have good people write a constitution who have some wisdom and the Constitution rules, then it's something positive. But you can have a low-grade population who doesn't understand much at all or has a lot of uh, misconceptions. If they write a Constitution, it could be terrible. Right. And then you have a republic, and it would be bad. Right. Well, and I think that's, you know, one of the most genius things that our founding fathers did is they distributed the power, right? So no one branch, no one person uh, could, you know, act quickly and ruin somebody's lives. In addition, that constitution protected minority rights, right? So whether you, whether your opinion is, uh, you know, a part of the zeitgeist or the, the, the majority movement today or not, in the United States, your opinion is yours and you're entitled to speak it and hence our First Amendment right. But yeah. you're right. Once we get away from that uh, and we start leaning more towards a democracy, which, uh, you know, not only did John Stuart Mills and other philosophers around the time talk about some of the dangers of that, but as well as John Adams. But, you know, you really do have a tyranny of the majority. And I think we've seen a number of current examples where the tyranny of the majority really ruled that, um, you know, are really disturbing because, you know, for example, I, and I'll give you one, but the Ka- Brett Kavanaugh uh, hearing 
was really interesting to me for a number of different reasons. But one, you're talking about pulling up evidence 20 years after the fact, right? And whether something happened or not, that is so far past the point that you could rationally prove anything. And what really bothered me is there was a real cry that he should be, he should face punishment before even being convicted. Right. Right. And there was, and, and to be fair, we've seen instances where people have been punished before even being convicted by, by a jury of their peers. Mm-hmm. That's not a civilized society. That's a mob rule. Right. Exactly. And now we've got, you know, the judiciary is supposed to be a actual safeguard against a lot of that happening. And a lot of it's been paid off and bought now and corrupted, you know, with the Soros influence and things like that. Right. Oh, yeah. No question about it. Around the country. People are being told, juries are being told in advance in famous cases that the defendant is guilty. Mm -hmm. don't, Don't worry about going through the jury process just decide how much they should be charged yeah i mean i think i think it's a fair statement to say that and i've said this to people that if you believe you live in a free country where you have rights um i would challenge you find one of the 10 amendment rights that has not been flagrantly violated in the last 20 years in addition you know if you want to talk about law You know, you look at the disparity of sentencing in the United States, it's ridiculous. But And I I give this example all the time. If you had a headache, Richard, and I were to give you a quarter of an Oxycontin or a hydrocodone and put it in your hand, and you were Mm -hmm. arrested on the spot, you're looking at a federal minimum mandatory sentencing of 10 years. Now, hypothetically, right, some other gentleman takes a, a firearm, holds it to a woman's head, and rapes her, right? So aggravated rape. Uh-huh. He's looking at seven years. So, you know, the, the idea of even crime today, you know, if you, if you read Blackstone's commentary on law and you get into the, the original concepts of common law, you know, there was a saying, no harm, no foul, right? So if you couldn't actually right. prove damage, no victim, no crime, right? No victim, no crime. Another way to say it. The reality is if we have, we've accepted all sorts of things that I would argue are pre-crime. For example, whether you imbibe in a substance like uh, alcohol, if you yeah. haven't actually run into somebody, you haven't actually harmed me, um, and you haven't damaged my property. And we've taken that, and people always say, well, there are cases where somebody's actually hurt somebody. And I'm like, right, that's a different story, right? That's negligence. Right. That's criminal negligence, and that's a crime in and of itself. What right. bothers me is we've accepted the uh, a false pretense, and so now we have cases where a guy was literally in his driving way, you know, had a couple of drinks inside his house, ran out to his car, but had his keys in his hand, reached in to get a pack of cigarettes, and now he's being charged with the DUI, and he hasn't even left his own driveway. You know, things like that, I mean, those are right. so egregious in, in, in its misuse of authority for the private citizen that it's, it's hard for me to comprehend how we've allowed this to be accepted. Right, and it's going up to the top, too, and both um, governors and other people and presidents like the current one are using this uh, made-up authority that they call executive orders, and they're just bypassing everything. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, look at what happened during COVID. I mean, you know, here's the hard reality, and, and I people think this is an extreme statement, but I don't think it is. We read in our history books about the internment camps of the Japanese and one of the largest seizures of private property, but you and I, Richard, have lived through the largest seizure 
of private property without judicial process in American history, and that was the COVID shutdown. We had businesses, a government told businesses you could not use your property, you could not earn money, right? Even though you were expected to pay your bills. That's an inverse condemnation from the word go. Yeah, yeah, and it brings up the uh, choice between freedom and security that you mentioned. You know, even if the the pandemic were real, which, you know, there's extensive evidence that Dr. Artis and others have come up with that it was a toxin that was specifically placed, had nothing to do with the virus in real sense. Uh, But whatever it was, even if it were real, and the uh, kill rate was 90%, people were dying in the street and everything, and it was absolutely the worst true pandemic that you can imagine. The government does not in the U.S. have the right to tell you to shut your business or to hide in your bathroom or anything like that. All they can do is recommend. And mm-hmm. then it's up to you as a citizen of a free country to decide whether to keep your business open and whether to come out of your house. And the reason they did that is that, you know, at the time people were saying, what about safety? And the, the founders were saying, if you opt for safety, you're slaves and your life is over no matter what the danger is. Mm -hmm. And so they did not allow the government to take away what they called inalienable rights. Mm -hmm. Also, no emergency calls. Right, right. I mean, you know, you're touching on something that I'm really passionate about, but we're talking about natural law now. Um, You know, now you've traversed into the certain rights of man, uh, which is made mention of in the Ninth Amendment. Um, and not just Americans. They they referred to these belonging to everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're inalienable. You're born with them from your creator, whatever you believe your creator to be. Sure. But but there's there's the difference too, and this is this is a fundamental philosophical difference that I, I think separates myself and a lot of other people. I believe, as and it sounds like you do as well, that you are born with these rights because you are a human being living and breathing today. You have certain rights that are just endowed to you. I right? would disagree on one on one part, and don't lose your train of thought here, but just inject it at the right point. Some rights, like the right to life. You're, you don't have to wait till you're born. Right, 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 right. Yep. So, yep. And they're certain. I mean, hence certain rights. They're not all things. But what's interesting is that there is now a generation that they believe that rights are given by a government. That is a fundamental difference in the way of thinking. Right. 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 And so, and, and that also flips it, right? I believe that governments are controlled by man. Right, are instituted among men to secure these rights, right, as our Constitution and our Declaration of Independence say. Whereas these people flip it and say, no, no, you're here to serve the government's interests. Well, that's that's fundamentally backwards. And I I think you're right. Yeah, there are people who believe that a lot of people who believe that the government represents God, basically. Mm -hmm. And people think, well, that was just you know, for the Egyptian pharaohs or some famous totalitarian ruler. No, that that's how people see it now. And they want more control in the hands of those governments because it's all for your benefit. And they don't get it that even if the government were right and they were doing something for your benefit that was true, if you give them that unquestioned, uh, unrestricted right, then the next government, you know, that takes over, that uses it for bad, there's nothing you can do. 
So you, I mean, you, have, you have to choose freedom or you're dead. Every, everyone forgets, but right before Hitler took power, it was the Weimar Republic. It was a Republican form of government. And right. they elected Hitler, right? And they, right, they created the whole new position of high chancellor. And I mean, the rest yeah. is history. But and, yeah. and what's scary is that's not the only place that we've seen that, right? I mean, you look at, uh, you look at, uh, you know, some of the South American countries, same thing. A lot of them are, you know, Argentina at one point was the third most, you know, powerful economic powerhouse country in the world. And then yeah. they adopted socialism. And, you know, you can see where they're at today. Yeah. Socialism being the precursor to fascism, at every time, in every every case. In fact, the Nazis were fa- were socialists. Mm-hmm. The National Socialist Party, right? So, if you look at back to the currency issue for a minute, where it stands right now, is there any? You said that it was in force or about to be in force between banks, between the central bank and the individual banks. Now, is there anything that you know that's bad about that? Well, so, you know, and I've, I've been trying to learn more about it, but essentially, you know, what, what disturbs me is, and this is more of a gut feeling, but my concern is, is back to the programmability of a central bank digital currency. There's also active talk about, um, you know, ha- delivering the retail CBDC if they were to launch that through mm-hmm six or seven different branches of the Federal Reserve, well, that pretty well eliminates our current, you know, banking system. In addition, it eliminates competition, uh, which is a fundamental basis of of a capitalist society. And when you're talking about having a single source that controls the disbursement of the money, yeah, I, I think that's a lot of power in a single set of hands. Right. Well, there's a, a serious question whether there's any justified reason for the uh, Federal Reserve to exist. I, yeah. I mean, I, I, can't, I personally I can't think of one. I can't either. I mean, I've, I've gone to actual Jekyll Island in Georgia and stood in the hotel where, you know, much of those meetings have taken place. Right. And I mean, knowing the history, they were a bunch of monsters. And I mean, truly, it was a Hegelian dialectic, right, where they, they posed the problem. The, you know, they had the, the banking crisis of 1896 and then the other, you know, economic instability that was occurring. Right. And so then they presented the solution. And I, I see the exact same thing here, right? We see possible banking foreclosures, right? And, and if you tie this to the monetary and fiscal policy that's been passed, I mean, I agree with those uh, those anal- economists that are coming back and saying, you know, who's really to blame for the Silicon Valley Bank? Well, the policymakers, without question, right? They allowed yeah. some of these things to happen um, and, and in many ways incentivized it. And so, you know, I almost see that there's almost, and it does, it, there's a lot of fair argument to say that this has been an active push to collapse our current banking system along with our monetary uh, currency, the U.S. dollar, uh, in order to push towards another monetary system. And I, I it yeah. does. It, it looks like it's pre-planned, just like it was in 1896. Yeah, I totally agree. And there was a statement by, <clears throat> who was it, Janet Yellen, maybe recently, that the big banks would be labeled as, uh, what, systemically important, was it? Right. Right. And I think other, that was the verbiage. And they would be essentially insured with fiat money just issuing right. whatever needed. And the other banks, in other words, the small ones, 
were uh, not to be helped. So they would go out of business. Right. Right. And I mean, and I find this a little bit ironic, by the way. I mean, talk about the duplicity and the hypocrisy of our politicians. You know, these banks aren't getting paid, bailed out. But then you mm-hmm. have Janet Yellen, right, openly making that statement. Well, what do you call that? You know, you're talking about bailing out some of these banks and, and yeah. giving preferential treatment uh, to them. And I think there was some kind of a hot mic on on a board meeting of some group recently that was in charge of a uh, large structure of banks. And they were saying, well, yeah, it's true that there can be bail-ins to save the banks. In other words, just stealing money out of your accounts. But we right. don't want to really make that the focus of our public discussion because it might upset people. But it, how can we balance letting them know to the degree that we're obligated to without really letting them know too much that they might realize what we're about to do. Right, right, right. Bail-in capability is apparently already in the rules at some level in the fine print. Well, I mean, you know, you get into a a really convoluted web of legal uh, issues there. Um but yeah, ultimately, I mean, you do, and we've seen examples of this where, um, you know, private institutions, I mean, for example, a lot, I don't think a lot of people have thought about what happened with the SVB uh, bankruptcy, but the FDIC is not necessarily the same sort of government type organization, right? I mean, the Federal Reserve in and of itself is not a federal government agency, right? No, it's, pri- it's private. It's a private bank. And so when you talk about, right, private institutions seizing other people's property, right? This is back to, I think, our our bigger discussion that we're having, Richard. Fundamentally, those constitutional rights were not put in place, right, during the convenient times. They were put in place to protect us during the emergencies, during the catastrophes. And the reality is people are forgetting people have a right to their property. And if you take that property without authority, right, that's stealing. And, and I mean, ultimately, you can dress this up a half a dozen different ways, but it, it's a form of theft. You know, there was a Harvard study about, I want to say 2008, and they went in and they talked to a bunch of guys at Rikers Prison, and they asked them some basic, you know, economic questions about what was going on with Wall Street. And I mean, mm-hmm. some of the answers from these, you know, guys was just hilarious. You know, some of these are big Italian dudes, and, you know, you're reading the transcript, and, you know, basically, they give the answer of saying, so let me get this right. They're taking all this money, but you ain't getting any juice in return. And the guy's like, yeah, essentially. And he's like, well, then that, then you're stealing the money, right? But yeah. Wall Street brokers, when they tested them, these guys failed ethics exams left and right. Like they could come up with the most convoluted reasons why you needed to, to create a new subcategory administrative fee to handle the money, even though you are already being paid three different ways to handle the money. Right. You know, right. it's it's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, the, the, what we talked about it as being education has been really pervasive throughout the whole society at this point. Right. Right, really has. It, you know, and there's the other issue. Nobody talks about morals and ethics or the difference between the two. And I mean, you know, when we talk about our legal system, I agree that laws are not always moral, but they should be, right? They should try and stick to certain uh, ethical paradigms. And and it's right. problematic that people don't even understand. And I, I would wager that there are some people that they truly do not understand the difference between right and wrong. 
and they can't give a rational answer as to why what they're doing is correct or incorrect, you know, for the greater whole of society. They mostly think it's something you're supposed to memorize about what's okay and what isn't okay. Right, right. It's If somebody doesn't have the code of ethics in front of them, how would you say they have to, you know, what should they be able to tell about right and wrong? You know, I think there's some basic things like, does it harm another human being? Does it stop them from exercising their inalienable rights that they have? Would it be something that you would be okay having done unto you? Um, You know, I'll just pull the golden rule because it's a pretty good basis to start at that if you're not okay with it happening to you, then why would it be okay for you to do to them? Right, right, right. If it were you, then... Would it be a good thing or not? It really gets down to pretty simple, you know. Don't don't cause intentional harm. It seems simple to me. I mean, if I had a T-shirt for my, you know, mantra of life, it'd be "Don't be a douche." Yeah, as long as you define <laughs> it. Yeah, I think that's right. And and originally that was controlling even the medical system. Right. You know, that was from Hippocrates. First, do no harm. Right, right. And that, that had to be thrown out when they became drug dealers. You know, well, the, uh, and there's there's a scary issue too. I mean, that's that's part of one of the things that really started to wake me up is, you know, when you look at the number of deaths by uh, pharmaceutical drugs in this country, and then mm-hmm. you even compare that to what we call narcotics or street drugs. Right. Um, you know, I think when you start to look at those numbers, there's a very compelling story that seems to lay itself out. Yeah, there's no comparison. I don't think there is. It's one of the major causes of death in the country and in the world, but especially in the U.S. But when you start making that compulsory, that's a whole new level. Right, absolutely. Well, I mean, Aldous Huxley, I'm sure, is jumping up and down with glee in his grave at the world that currently exists. I mean, I don't think a lot of people realize Aldous Huxley, a lot of people, you know, thought that he wrote the book you know, it's a diceotopic novel, but in many respects, you know, it's it's what he foresaw for the future. And if you listen to some of his interviews, he was very clear about that. Um, but it's true, right? We're taking our soma and we're watching our our flashing lights on the walls, and right. we're all in a daze. And it's it's really actually tragic when you think about the current state of man. Yeah, and a lot of the world was looking to the U.S when it was early stages of growth as an example of what it would be like if you were able to be free, you know, and you compared to history as a whole, when you look back over it, you see that one country after another with the general population, probably being good, regular people under the control of a relatively small number of criminals called the right. government. Right. And maybe their partner corporations which is a definition of fascism when the government works with proxy partners like that. But, right. Um, it's the same thing now. And, and America, which used to have, you know, an attempt to live by these founding principles, now it's real different. And the, the, I think the question is how to get back to it. And the CBDCs are just an example. You know, if you don't solve the root problem and you've still got the criminals in charge and most of the population just being zombies and following everything, even if it's suicidal orders, then you get a really fundamental question that goes beyond just what is the detail of the CBDC that needs to be stopped. 
why do these kind of things keep being proposed and passed? You know, and even the things that are exposed in government, why do they get exposed and then nothing happens? Right. You know, I, I think I hate to say this, but I, I think part of it does come down to what we're willing to tolerate. Um, yeah, somebody said that. That was famous, right? The degree of tyranny will be what you're willing to put up with. I forget who it was. And, and it's it's a really valid point. I can't remember who said it either. But, you know, the, the reality is, is that, I mean, when you look at the disparity, right, there's supposed to be equal application of law. But, I mean, the fact that Nancy Pelosi, there are literal trading firms in California that all they do is they monitor what she's buying and selling for stock. And they advise their investors to invest in that because mm-hmm. they have like a 90 percent success rate because everybody knows she's doing insider trading. Right. Right. I mean, uh, you know, Bernie Rangel was cited for an ethics violation court and slapped on the wrist, whereas Martha Stewart actually goes to prison. Um, You know, I mean, the level of disconnect between, you know, what we would. And ironically, I mean, this is the United States where we fought against a ruling class. Right. Kings and dukes and said that is not the system of government we want. And yet that is exactly what we've created. I mean. You know, the idea, there's even congressional prohibitions against emoluments of office, and yet we have a congressional, you know, retirement plan. That's that's completely out of touch with what our founding fathers ever intended. Right. And getting to start wars with executive orders. Oh, it's insane. Yeah. I mean, you can use money that doesn't exist and and fund it. Right. I mean, the idea of administrative law I, you know, and it's funny how we keep contorting the definition of words, but to administer something, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you tell me to pick up my mouse, I will administer my hand to the mouse and pick it up. Um, okay. Right? I mean, there's there's some clear, but the disconnect is, is now administ- administering or ex- executing, right, has now become creating, right? I mean, now we have the executive legislating through this execution, and that was never intended, right? There's three right. branches of government. There's the legislative, the executive, the judicial. And, and the, the, you know, even, even with the judicial, we've seen a real overstep in a number of different instances where through their interpretation, they're creating new law or to, you know, quote a famous case under the penumbra of all these other interpretations. Here's a right. new set of rights or, you know, exactly. things like that. And the agencies that have been uh, created by the federal government are mostly illegal. No. They're they're doing jobs in in areas that the government's not allowed to operate in. Right. I mean, you mentioned one, the the obligation to contract and labor. I mean, I get a lot of people find this opinion, uh, you know, not not a very welcoming opinion. But look, I'm pre-Lochner era. I do not believe that Lochner versus New York was a valid interpretation of the U.S. Constitution. And I think... Frankly, you can hire somebody at anything you want as long as they're willing to accept it. You know, as mm-hmm. long as you're not holding a gun to their head. Look, and, and you know, here's the here's the reason I believe that too, because if you're if you truly have freedom over your own person, right, mm-hmm. you have the right to set your own destiny. But if you're putting up guardrails, and people don't think about this, right? When I was a kid, I loved to earn money. I you know, I'd go mow my neighbor's yard. Mm-hmm. People don't think about this, but technically, right, if you're having a young kid mow your yard and you're not paying him minimum wage, it's technically yeah. a violation of minimum wage, right? But especially if she's doing it on a weekly, monthly basis. Now, 
Luckily, most people just kind of turn the other way and say, well, that's that's ridiculous. And, you know, we don't want to overstep. But those are the constraints, because if we were to truly enforce them as they're intended, then, you know, you couldn't have neighborhood kids learning work ethic and learning skills to do. Well, they're violating child labor laws anyway, too, right? Right. Oh, all over the place. Yeah. I mean, me personally, I think a little hard work never hurt anyone, but it's me. Totally (laughs) agree. So the government is doing things that they're not allowed to do and basically saying, what are you going to do about it? Right. And that's a a serious question. Well, you know, I'll, I'll just bring up an event that's not too far back in our history, but there was a family in Nevada that did stand up. And I think it's very, very telling to see how much of a house of cards this really is. Because, you know... Nobody had to get violent. They showed they showed that they could, that they were capable of it. But at the time, when they were talking about the BLM land grab in Nevada, right, mm-hmm. a bunch of farmers and ranchers got together and stood up and said, no, this is wrong, and you don't have the right to take this man's property. Right. Um, and, you know, what we saw was the federal government backed off. Um, because there was enough public response, Right. Right. And I mean, that's the thing that I think is really clear is, you know, when you look at any form of government, it really does come down to the collective whole of the people that if people are just not willing to put up with it, right? the government truly has no power without you. So when they're doing things in Congress that are a threat to the existence of society in the future, like, for example, right now, this bill in the Senate, right, 686? Yep, yep, the Restrict Act, sure. Right, and that's making believe that it's a retaliation against TikTok doing bad things. But it has nothing to do with that. And what it does is it says that the government can take over all of your electronic devices, including appliances with spyware and chips in them, and control everything that you do. And if you do anything that uh, is supportive, in their opinion, of a foreign adversary, which means they can define any country as a foreign ad- adversary, then you can go to prison for 20 years and pay a million dollars. Right. I mean, I find it unbelievably hypocritical that the United States, within years after condemning Iran, China, and various other countries for doing exactly the same thing, right. we are now engaged in the exact same thing in the United States and proposing to do it. I mean, the level of hypocrisy should outrage every American, and frankly, it should also outrage most of the EU and all those other countries that were accused of violating human rights for doing these actions. Um, You know, I, I will say in addition, here's the thing that, you know, I I think this has constantly been a test to see how far can we push. And it's been a gradual incremental push. And, And ultimately there does come a point that, You have to ask yourself, right? I think most people recognize, like, if somebody pulls a firearm on you and they're Mm -hmm. threatening your life, you have a right to defend yourself. But then you get into some of the more murky situations. Like, if somebody cuts off your road access as a farmer and starts to burn your fields, Mm -hmm. he isn't killing you directly, but if he keeps you isolated there, eventually you'll starve to death. Is he threatening your life? I would argue he is. Yeah. And and so when you look at the hyperinflation in food prices, the overregulation of the American farmer into being able to deliver the food to a neighbor literally down the road from him, um, 
you know, I think you start to see a question that forms that we start to ask ourselves, what is a government doing for us currently? And, and yeah. I think you're right that there are some areas that frankly they have no business in and they need to back out. Most of what they do, I would say. Yeah. And it's probably true on a state level too. And, you know, the coordination and subtlety of some of the language of these bills, like 686 and the other ones that are clearly targeting the people as the victim, uh, they're not being written by the so-called representatives. Right. They're being written by very specialized legal teams, right? And then the representatives vote for them, often without reading them or having any idea what they are. You know, one of the things that you're touching on that I think is really important for people and and anyone listening to understand, but there is a concept of called interposition, right? And the ability of the states to use things, for example, like the anti-commandeering doctrine. And the anti-commandeering doctrine is pretty clear that you, even if the federal government comes down and says to a sheriff, you need to go seize every person's firearms in your state. Right. The sheriff and all those law enforcement would be perfectly within their right to say absolutely not. That's an obvious, you know, violation of not only the Second Amendment, but also the right of due process under the Fifth and the right of the trial by jury under the Sixth. These people have been convicted of nothing and they inherently have that right. right. They would be fully backed legally to do that. Now, what I would say is, and the reason this is so important for citizens to understand, this is where, again, our founding fathers were truly geniuses of their time, and I would say of time. Um, yeah. But the way they distributed that power, there are ways and mechanisms that your local government, they can push back. You know, they can stop yeah. some of this and say, look, we're not going to recognize that. Well, the Constitutional Sheriff's Movement was one of those. But one of the things that they've said recently, not not just Richard Mack, who's been on our show a few times, but others connected with him, is that in order to have that actually do something, they can't have a corrupt county attorney. Right. They have to have a justice system at the county level that's not corrupt. Otherwise, they have a problem because they arrest people and they get set free. Right, and right, right. Run into some problem like that, which which is the genius on the negative side of the Soros, you know, people buying the district attorneys. Right. Right. And, you know, here's the one thing that I guess I would say, too, is this is where there needs to be a mechanism for the people to. And, you know, this is where there I think there's been some healthy changes and discussions about this. But the populist movement, uh, my state was actually one of the first to adopt initiative referendum and recall in the country, uh, followed shortly around the same time of Oregon. Uh, you know, way back when. But, you know, there are some efforts that I do think that there needs to be some mechanism for the citizens to take their elected officials and say, look, you're not doing your job. I also think that, you know, the state attorneys or district attorneys, this idea of prosecutorial discretion has been severely misused and abused. And it has allowed for really egregious levels of corruption to occur in our criminal justice system. Well, it's like the uh, New York attorney that uh, press charges against Trump, right? Yeah, brags. For some payoff of a blackmail threat a long time ago, which wasn't well, even it, a problem. Well, and what's interesting is, I mean, I, I don't understand how they're not going to run into double jeopardy issues on that, because that has already been heard by a U.S. federal district court and mm-hmm. been decided. 
Um, right. So, you know, how is this not double jeopardy? Well, it was also done by an attorney, not by Trump. Right, right. They have some problems, and apparently they're backing off of it right now, but it's just, it doesn't mean I'm agreeing with everything Trump did. He's got major issues sure. with immoral behavior with the handing the country over to Fauci and stuff like that. Oh, absolutely. And, and blaming China for a U.S. funded project was ridiculous. But, um. You've done your research. Yeah. But, but the, uh, the things that he said were enough to make him hated by the media with the border control and speaking out against abortion and talking about withdrawing money from the World Health Organization which was really great, and withdrawing from the uh, Paris Climate Accord, which should have been done immediately. Right. Total scam operation. And, right. Uh, so much. But uh, I, I wish Trump didn't have the glaring holes in his record. You know, like he's known for some time about the fact that the, the fake uh, COVID shots have been killing probably 20 million worldwide at this point. And if he, if he doesn't know about that, he's too ignorant to run for any office. And if he does know about it, he's a complicit with mass murder. And right. It's just when people try to evaluate stuff like that, they have a tendency to want to totally condemn or totally deify the person in charge. They, they don't look at a mixed picture. And it's really well, mixed in the case of Trump, right? You're, you're touching on something that is another really good example of the perversion of our current legal system. I mean, yeah. and it's, it's something that I've talked really in depth with a couple of uh, lawyer friends of mine. But, you know, one of the issues that I see is not only did we pervert tort law, right, specifically in allowing a, a manufacturer to have the same immunity that we give a government, right? That even if your product kills somebody, even if it maims them, right, it does severe harm. There's right. no crime associated, and you can't be held liable. That That is really an unprecedented move, and it's a dangerous precedent for tort law. Uh, tort that's law, what, obviously, dealing with liability assignment. Right. That's with specific industries, the right. most noticeable of, notable of which is the vaccine industry. And that was right. one, well, of the, one of the I faults mean, of Reagan was to sign that bill. Uh, I'm sorry, Reagan with what bill? To sign, sign the immunity for the vaccine companies back when he was uh, in office. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, in, in the 1980s, the immunities for the vaccines back then was for the research and development. Uh, I, if I'm well, not the, mistaken. The original problem that, that led to the bill that he signed that let him off the hook is that the vaccine makers came to uh, Congress and said, uh, you know, we have a major problem because this wonderful product uh, class that we're making is killing so many people and, and, and disabling them for life that we're getting sued for that. And we can't deliver this wonderful product if we keep getting sued and losing all our money. And the obvious solution is just if we kill your family, we're not responsible. And Reagan said, that makes sense. I'll sign it. Wow, that's insane. Yeah. I'll have to look into that again. Serious problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you know, what's what's troubling about the COVID thing is a lot of these things, it, it gets down to, con you know, the ability to make contract and to own things, property rights. And I, I think that's some of the, the shifts in that I saw, especially during 2020, that really, really frightened me about what it may hold and what it may mean for the future. Mm -hmm.
Yeah. Yeah, because the question in, in these discussions always come up with, okay, what's the solution? You know, and when you're looking at CBDCs looming on the horizon and already in progress, what matters is how do you prevent, first of all, understanding the issue, and right. second, of all, second of all, preventing it and turning it back. And the existence of the authority of the Federal Reserve in America and central banks controlling almost every other country seems to be at, near the core of the issue. And they're all under the control of the uh, BIS in Switzerland. Right, nailed it. You know, I think yeah. I. Oh, That's governments, and they're not accountable for anything by law. No, no, they aren't. And you know, I think going back to interposition, I think Ron DeSantis, uh, governor of Florida, absolutely hit the nail on the head. Not only should they not define money to mean or allow a CBDC, but they should strictly prohibit it. And and yeah. part of the reason I love that is if this bill and the UCC has nothing to do with the implementation of a central bank digital currency, then they should have no complaint whatsoever in adding a provision in the current UCC 2022 amendments to say we will not recognize a central bank digital currency that is a programmable and controllable by a third party and or governmental entity as a currency in the state of Florida. There should be no problem with that. Right, right. Well, I don't know at the federal level, it looks like the problem is the so-called representatives don't even try to understand what they're voting on. They just follow orders. And I think there's a network of mafias that's telling them, if you vote the way we tell you to vote, you're going to get all these perks. And like you mentioned with Nancy, the insider trading, it's going to be great. We'll put you on television. You get all these, you know, promotions from everywhere. If you don't, you know, that's fine. It's your choice. We'll just have to destroy you. And if that's not clear enough, we'll kill your family. But it's totally your choice. You know, I, I'm going to throw something out. And I mean, I would almost say this is kind of a message of hope for everyone. Mm-hmm. A lot of legislators, you're right. They don't know what they can and can't do. They don't know um, a lot of what's going on in legislation. And I'll, I'll give you an example. In working uh, with different you know, state elected officials and even have met you know, a few congressmen that I've worked with, the the reality is is that you know they get tossed you know citizens contact them all the time saying hey i have an idea i have a thing right but if you approach a legislator and say look you know i know you want to do the right thing and some of them really do that's why they got into office and say here's a bill i want you to read this and i have a list of possible co-sponsors and here's some talking points would you review it and get back to me you can affect real change in a big way. And there's a lot of them. Look, they don't have time to write this legislation. They're jump, you know, they've created, they've created a system where our representatives are filled with busy work all the time. Right. Right. So the average citizen can do the exact same thing that these high powered lobbyists do all the time. So if you see something like that, sit down with some of your friends, write out a bill and contact a bunch of representatives and say, Hey, you know, how do you feel about central bank digital currencies? If they say they're for it, you probably don't want to ask them. But if you, you know, you run into some of the people that you know are hardcore conservatives, they want to return to a, a actual, like, you know, uh, mm-hmm. a metal-backed currency like gold or silver. Um, you know, those mm-hmm. are the guys that would introduce something to really start to push back on this. And once you get right. there, right, you can start to create some waves. So how do people that think that's a good idea, but know nothing about it, what do they do? 
So if, if they know nothing about it, I would say, hey, take some time, read up. You know, it doesn't take long to actually, a lot of this is all public information, right? I mean, the Federal Reserve has openly published their intentions. Um, there's a number of different articles on it. Um, there's even, you know, quite a few different, I would almost argue like tutorials on how this is being implemented. But from there, right, you know, decide how do you want to approach the problem? Do you, you know, I personally think, you know, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, I've already taken a look at his bill and we're reworking something for South Dakota here to try and push here in 2024 uh, as, you know, because we know the UCC amendments are going to come back and we'd like to introduce that and say, look, if you guys really don't think this has anything to do with the CBDC, here's our easy amendment and we'll back off, right? Accept this and we're done. But, you know, chances are, you know, they'll rear their head and show their true colors, at which point, you know, really is about controlling our money and controlling us. So as far as learning the process of how to have an impact on local government, which you're talking about city or state. Sure. And I I guess uh, federal representatives, too, within your state, uh, if you want to start learning the process for how to do that, how do you how do you? Well, sure. So like, for example, if I go right to azleg.gov, right, mm-hmm. I can see right on your, uh, you know, state website there, I can read the Arizona revised statutes. I can look at the state constitution. I can look at the bills. Um, as a matter of fact, I would even garner that I could probably even type in the word rules and I will probably find, uh, somewhere on this, you know, deal, the actual house and Senate rules, uh, in which they operate. You know, these are things that are, again, publicly available. All it takes is a little bit of time and a little bit of effort to sit down and say, hey, um, and, you know, here's the other thing. Most states have, um, you know, legislative research councils or uh, I guess you guys call yours a legislative council. Um, but they're they're basically uh, full time paid people that work with the legislators, try and, you know, advise them and research bills and, you know, draw them up. But a lot of them, if you pick up the phone and call them and say, hey, I'm a young person or I'm a regular citizen and I want to learn more about, you know, the rules on how this works, you know, how do I learn more about the process? A lot of them, uh, from my experience, they'll send you information. They're more than happy to. What about the general idea of educating representatives in your area? Well, exactly. Once you're educated for office to do that. Say again. You don't have to run for office to do that. No, exactly. I mean, arguably, I've seen more change come out of people that actually really understood the system and knew how to write bills and knew how to pick up the phone and contact people than some of the elected officials. Yeah, I, me too. And and your point about them being too busy to learn is really, it, it's obviously a, a problem, but it's also an opportunity. Because if you offer them an easy way to learn what's really going on, then they could make use of that and look like they're more educated. That'd be good for their image. I mean, you know, I've had people say all the time, you know, I wish I could get so-and-so politician to say X, right? Insert whatever you want X to be. Right. I've I've done this on more than one occasion where I've talked to a representative and said, hey, you know, we you had mentioned X, you know, a couple of days ago. And I've been Mm -hmm. thinking about that. I've written a bill. I want you to look over it. And if you're willing to do this, I have talking points for you. Those talking points are exactly that. They are statements that I would like him to say publicly. Now, you'd be surprised. 
realize how often I'll be sitting there watching the floor debate and here pops up the representative that believes as I do, right, that individuals should have, you know, their rights and liberties. And all of a sudden he's saying exactly word for word what I wrote up as a talking point. Yeah. And instead of it just being a complaint, it's an opening. Exactly. Right? Take advantage of that because they're too busy to do most of what they're supposed to be doing. And what's really amazing is you've got these so-called representative on the federal and state levels voting yes to pass a bill that they haven't read. It happens I mean, all the time. Nancy Pelosi, we got to vote on it to see what's in it, right? Yeah, that was I'm sorry. Obamacare, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, it was the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. Well, I'd like to keep up with your work and, and have you around as, as often as you're open to it. And yeah, thank you. It's been fun. For the, for the moment, to just kind of summarize the CBDC thing, they're trying to bring bring in the next phase of the cent- central bank uh domination of all transactions with money and they're doing that by a cbdc which means you have to work on their system and anything that you want to buy or sell they have to okay it and right if not, and if, if you're really a problem and you have unacceptable political or social views they can just turn off your money and you're free to express whatever you want you just can't eat any food or drive your car etc Right. I mean, I, I think you put it very, very well. Um, you know, as a matter of fact, your last statement there, uh, if you have undesirable political views, you might not be able to access your money. That's a direct quote from Steve Forbes in talking about the CBDC in an article he wrote, a uh, Fed's digital dollar idea has frightening implications for privacy. Um, you know, and, and it, it's a legitimate point. Yeah. And I think they want to make it so that, you know, your car access to drive your car is conditional too. And eventually, if they get the the uh, 5G network all over the place where the 5G signals could control self-driving electric electric cars, then whether you can even get into one of those is going to be conditional as well. Everything right. you tell with your medical records and everything else. Well, and that's not too far-fetched, Richard. I mean, they've talked about unifying health records on uh, CAC cards or smart chip cards uh, before right. as a as a universal passport system. Um, so that I, I don't think that that's science fiction anymore. The technology's there. It's a perfectly reasonable, logical conclusion to believe that they would go there. Yeah, they, they teach in uh, public health school and PhD in medical school that the electronic medical record system, EMR, is... Uh, a wonderful step forward for being able to treat people better and stuff like that. But it's actually a complete control system. And the problem with it, other than that it goes directly against your guaranteed inalienable freedom, is that the medical system has been weaponized and it's based on calling toxic chemicals uh, medicine, which is absolutely ridiculous, you know, and cutting the body up when you don't need to and invasive procedures that could be replaced with natural ones that don't hurt you. And if you're forced into that system, it's basically, it's, it was used by the Soviets to, you know, do terrible things to people in the name of health if they were dissidents or send them to Siberia for their health care, something like that. And the same thing is developing here. So, right. But, you know, it's what's frightening, and this may sound like conspiracy theory, but I just sent you a link from Congress 
But okay. there was a gentleman, a representative from the state of Florida, called Harrelong in January 10th of 1963, and he cited off goals of the Communist Party. And it, it's interesting to read them today, right, where they talk yeah. about, um, you know, taking over, uh, transfer some of the power of arrest from the police to social agencies, right? That was number 38. And this was read on the House of Representatives in 1963, right? And now today we've gone through the uh, Black Lives Matters and uh, 2020 protests where there's been an active push, right, where some cities have uh, relinquished arrest power to social agencies and different nonprofits. Um, and so it's it's really amazing to me some of the things that you were saying that, I mean, weaponizing uh, psychiatry, right? That was another yeah, one of their goals. exactly, right. Right. This wasn't the guy that was interviewed by G. Edward Griffin, was it? I don't know. The 10 steps of taking over a capitalist or basic free country, relatively free country. And he was saying that the U.S. is far along that process. Right. It could be. The the issue is how to reverse the process. Right. Right. Exactly. We've got to have people waking up. So, so. Do you want to say anything about wh- how your work is going now, what you're currently focused on, and what your next goals are going to be? In your- right, uh, yeah. So a lot of uh, our goals here in South Dakota, and I would say the State Freedom Caucus Network, is we're really trying to not only uh, work with various grassroots organizations in all of our states and get them, uh, you know, as you were saying, for those that really do have an interest, you know, get them trained, give them tools, help them, uh, you know, make an impact. But in addition, we're looking at trying to go on the offensive um, really against some of these current agendas uh, and to solidify, right, that uh, our states are not going to participate in this and to really draw a real thick line in the sand to say, you know, this is where we're not going to go. And are you talking about CBDCs or more generally? Well, more generally, because I'll, I'll give another example. So in South Dakota, we just passed HB 1080, uh, talked about um, – medical treatment for minor children, uh, you know, and it, I guess I wouldn't even say it's medical treatment, uh, but, you know, the ability to do hormones and other things, right? right, right? We right. finally came back and said, look, you got to wait till you're 18. Um, you know, wait till you're a fully consenting adult. No one's, you know, medically there's, you're not going to perish just because you have to wait a little bit. Um, no, in fact, it's going to save you from some really bad stuff. We some of the testimony that we heard and, you know, I have to say some of the people from the LGBTQ community, I really appreciate them having the fortitude and the integrity to stand up and talk about some of their personal experiences. I mean, it was very powerful. They're essentially Um, whistleblowers, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, one gentleman, um, I am not a crier, but I will tell you, Richard, uh, he had a very touching and compelling story to tell about what he had gone through. And, um, you know, I wish I wish more people could hear that sort of pain. And, and more importantly, when you talk about the medical community being weaponized, what they did to him is nothing short of criminal. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's very organized. And and they're taking advantage of people that don't understand what's going on. And, you know, the way nature works is very delicate. It's not haphazard. And the hormone balance in your physical body is what makes you, you know, first of all, before you get born, you're not male or female. You're whatever word you want to use, consciousness, spirit, 
you know, coming from the original source or from God, and then you come into a physical body. So whether you say you are a man or a woman, it only describes what body you're in. That's all. It doesn't right. describe your essence. So it's really simple. You know, if you get born into a male body, you're a male and it, for that lifetime. And when you get born into a female body, you're female. It's it's not complicated. There's not an evil white man that assigns a gender arbitrarily to you. Right. You know, which they want you to think by using the word assign, which is really weaponized use of language. And so right. um, while you're in that body, your brain signals, and, and the brain is constructed differently for male bodies and female bodies, and they have hormone centers and hormone triggers, and they tell the body what hormone balance to achieve. And that makes you feel that you are a male or you are a female for as long as you're in that body. It's very well designed and it works really well. If you get that corrupted by ingesting toxins and hormone disruptors and atrazine runoff from the agriculture, you know, things like that and weaponized EMF fields from 5G and other things, then that changes the hormone balance. It even comes through plastics. And mm-hmm. uh, the coding that they put on receipts that come out of cash registers, all kinds of different, you know, sources of hormone disrupting chemicals. And the B- BPA, I guess they called it, that was in plastics, that was polluting water in water bottles with uh, hormone disrupting chemicals and people were drinking it. They caught them with BPA, but there's all kinds of other ones. Mm-hmm. You know, it's better to drink out of glass for that reason. Sure. Um, if you combine that with brainwashing that's very sophisticated, it says you may not be the gender that you think you are. And mm-hmm. people are taking away your freedom to decide for yourself what gender you're going to be. That right. is uh, brainwashing for mental illness, which is really successful. And the, the trans people that have fallen for this are not that they're great people. They're just like anybody else. Right. But they've been subject to a combination of brainwashing and chemical assault. And if you do that to anybody, me or you or anyone, <laughs> I don't think I'm a girl at the moment, but I could start feeling that, you know, sure. with enough chemical intrusion and things like that. And then when you take that early with kids and you start cutting their bodies up in with the idea that they can become the other gender, that's not true. It's all a crime. You know, right. doctors carrying that out are basically criminals. Well, I'll say this, that we, uh, right before this bill, there was a uh, transgender, uh, a Midwest Transgender Summit. And uh, we had a couple of people that we got to go into that conference. What was shocking to me is to hear medical doctors uh, recognize two facts that I find incredibly disturbing, which was first, that a large percentage of uh, people that are, you know, minor adults um, or even just straight up minors, because um, I would say if you're if you're talking about somebody under the age of 10, that's definitely just a child. Um, you know, that a number of these, they found a direct correlation to um, gender dysphoria or transgenderism, however you want to phrase it, and autism. Right. 
Um, and there is a, an incredibly high prevalence and correlation to that. But the other issue is, is that they know that there's a number of other uh, comorbidities in a mental health type realm here where there's also other mental illnesses uh, in a number of these people. And so, you know, when you talk about giving informed consent, you're going to somebody that has uh, in many ways and, and in the, and to quote one of the doctors that spoke, um, diminished cognitive capabilities um, that's the phrase that she used. So you're getting informed consent from somebody that may not be able to necessarily give it. And to yeah. me, that's really fundamentally disturbing because now we're talking about stuff that, you know, we've made reference to World War II before, but, you know, the Nuremberg trials, one of the major uh, points that I think came out of that was also the medical experiments and, and the, you know, the creation of what we now know today is medical ethics and, yeah. You know, that's that's the stuff that we want to go on the offensive and, and restore and say, look, you know, let's learn from history. You know, there are some people that you you don't do this to. Um, well, even if somebody has really sharp mental facilities, nobody's being given informed consent. On right. almost any, any medical procedure, any drug, any vaccine, if they did and they, you know, because informed consent means that they have to tell you what harm might come to you from doing it right and they they don't do that i mean they should be doing that with any drug or any procedure and if they did it would be the end especially with the alternatives available it would be the end of probably 90 percent of medicine right now well and if you dig into it i mean here's the other hard reality and i mean i served in the military but now that i'm an older man I understand why there's a, quite a few people. There's a huge, obvious, you know, a logical disconnect here in what the age of consent is, because at 18 years of age, right, we've drawn that to be the line, even though you can't legally drink and you can't legally, you know, I mean, go right. down a long list of things. Well, wait a second. Why the disconnect? Well, the reality is, is they the government has a concerted interest in finding young men they can be frankly duped into joining a military force to go over to fight foreign wars. And I, I realize this is not a popular opinion, but the reality is if you look at neurological evidence, right, a, a male's brain is not really fully developed until about 25, 26 years of age. Yeah, 25 or so. Yeah. And so, you know, the reality is, too, I mean, after I got in the military and I started to grow up a little bit, I started even looking at some of this stuff going, wait a second. Why are we involved in these conflicts? What, right. you know, how does that serve the national interest? You know, Did why am free, I going to go die? Uh, hypothetically, the people in Vietnam, right? Like, and, and just because your brain is developed doesn't mean you have any wisdom, right? And there it is. I mean, and you know, I and mind you, I'm the young man that at 25 got elected to my city council, and I would even say 25 seems about the right age to finally draw the line and say, no. 25, maybe you're a, you know, you're, you're about that age of consent. But, you know, the reality is, is that, um, you know, we have a lot of young people that you don't know what's going on. And when you talk about hormones, I mean, you know, let's just talk about human anatomy for one second, but from the age of like 13 to really some, and it, I mean, it can vary pretty widely nowadays with some of the, you know, anesthetizing uh, different factors that can come into your body that you were talking about, mm-hmm. you know, it, the reality is, is those are fluctuating wildly for a number of years. And they overcome logic in every case. Oh, I absolutely. Mean, hormones are powerful. And they can, what happens is you, you change the beliefs to match what the hormones tell you. 
you know, and the brainwashing and the chemicals and everything. They're they're running people's lives. We're we're in a society where running across somebody who's not dealing with some aspect of mental illness is rare. Mm-hmm. We need to come out of that. Because it's like all of us, you know, you're using the autistic argument. And oh, inter- an interesting factoid is that where there's no vac- vaccination at all, you know, this, this contradicts the argument that COVID is not good because it's not a real vaccine. Their so-called real vaccines are also weapons. They're they're frauds, and I've done the research behind that. And you were saying that they were using autistic kids. There's no autism where there's no vaccination at all. I mean, there's other factors that lead to it, but vaccines are the primary cause, and it's been shown. There's a really informative website uh, called thecontrolgroup.org, and they've done surveys about the health outcomes of people who are unvaccinated, which is a disappearing population, and the rest of everybody. There's no comparison even with heart attacks and uh, arthritis and other seemingly unrelated vaccines. The rates of all the diseases, unrelated diseases, I'm sorry. Right. Rates of all the diseases are radically different. But in, in a way, the controllers at the top who have nefarious interests and are not just misunderstanding what's going on. They're using all of us like a giant worldwide autistic population to take advantage of because very few of us have broken out of the, the mental situation that's controlling society right now. So I mean, I, I hate to sound facetious, but it's almost like a bunch of global elitists would get together and literally write down a plan how to eliminate the entire world population down to 500,000 to control the world and might write it on stone in various languages and stick it in the middle of Georgia. Oh, wait, they did. It was called the Georgia Guidestones. Yeah, nobody would ever do that, right? Yeah, no, 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 no. (laughs) I mean, you know, I mean, what's laughable nowadays is it's kind of like a meme I saw recently that said, who's laughing now? Which one of the conspiracies did you not believe? Right. And it's, it's gotten to be kind of true because it's like, you know, you look at some of this stuff and it's, you know, I remember, I'll never forget while I was going through college, one of my friends, uh, an older lady that I got along with and we saw politically eye to eye on a lot of things. um, She said, you know, this LGBTQ, uh, there's, there's, you know, people that are actively trying to like go after kids. And I was like, that's, that's a stretch for me. Right. I think that's too far. And then nobody would do that. Right. And then all of a sudden, you know, here we are today and here's the San Francisco gay men's choir talking about we're coming for your children. It's yeah, like they put that in the lyrics of the choir song. Right. Literally singing <laughs> it. And I'm like, that's not funny. I mean, that's never funny. And, you know, I don't find that satirical at all. Um, what does it mean that they thought they were so dumbed down at this point that they can just sing it? And nobody will notice anything wrong. Right. I mean, and that's kind of why I backed up and went. Wow, okay, so my conspiracy friend might have been right. Okay. Right. You know, slight shift here. One of the things that you talk about a lot and that you help people and and lawmakers understand, I think, if I understand your online content, is about the truth about gun control. Sure. That may be a thing to come back about and talk about if you'd like to. Oh, sure. There's still a lot of people who believe, well, obviously outlaw all the guns and we'll all be safe 
<laughs> so uh, a gentleman that I have an immense amount of respect for, his name is Dr. John Lott. Uh, yeah. He's he's written a number of different publications and done very uh, thorough analysis on this. But look, you know, if you look at the murder rate in D.C. compared to other parts of the country, you look yeah. at, uh, you know, the murder rate by firearms in the state of New York compared to other parts of the country. Yeah. Um I think it becomes really clear the correlation of what's going on, right? Um, you know, where you have gun control, you do stop regular law-abiding citizens from defending themselves, but you do not stop the criminals. Except it's obviously contradicted in where it's totally safe and they have total gun control in Mexico. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, I'm sorry. You, you said that with a straight face. That was incredible. I mean, you know, let's just forget the cartels and let's forget all the coyotes and all the rape yeah. and the, you know, drugs, you know. But yeah, if we, if we ignore all of that and live in fantasy land for five seconds and forget the fact that President, you know, Vicente Fox had numerous assassination attempts on him, then yeah, okay, sure, it's safe. <laughs> so they, they didn't outlaw assassinations. And they should have outlawed guns for cartels specifically. That was the mistake. I get it now. It's it's like communism. Obvious answer, right? It's like communism. We actually haven't done it yet, right? Right. So if we just outlaw crime, we could stop all this, you know, problems that are happening right now. I mean, you know, there's times I kind of wonder with these people. I'm like, you do realize when you put up signs saying, you know, no guns on the premises. A criminal right. looks at that and goes, ah, easy target. There have been some great cartoons set up with this lady sleeping in bed, and uh, there's a criminal that, that comes through her window, a uh, murderer, a kidnapper or something, a rapist, and comes up to the bed, and he's about to shoot her, and she's just barely rolling over half asleep and holds up a sign, gun-free zone, and he gets rats and climbs back out the window. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. I mean, people really are believing that. No, I mean, this, and this is what's disturbing to me is, I mean, everybody forgets, like, let's talk about the Armenians with Turkey, right? Let's talk about, uh, you know, the Jews with Hitler again. Let's talk about, um, Pol Pot. Let's talk about, I mean, we could go down a long list of despotic dictatorships. And one of the first things they do is they disarm their populace from being able to resist the tyranny. Right. right. Because, look, yeah. nobody wants to fight. They just want to control you. Common sense and freedom and all that stuff and informed consent and the basic principles and all of it becomes a lot simpler. Right. Right. If um, people want to get in touch with you or stay in touch with what you're doing or follow your work or anything, are there any websites that you'd recommend or absolutely else? so i'm a part of the state freedom caucus network and you can go to statefreedomcaucus.org um mm-hmm. and i'm right on that website uh, as well as uh uh these uh you can always reach out i work very closely with the south dakota freedom caucus uh here in south dakota um and i'm constantly you know fighting for liberty and freedom and sometimes you find me in other parts of the country trying to assist others to uh advance that cause Neat, neat. Yeah, you've got one of the better uh, governors, I think, in the country, and some of the people in your state legislature are also pretty awake. Yeah, yeah, we've, uh, there's, uh, I suppose there's good and bad with everyone, but yeah, overall, we've been pretty lucky given the circumstances. Yeah. 
Okay, well, Jordan, it was honor to get to meet you and talk to you for a little while. So, yeah, thank you so much, Richard, for having me on. My pleasure. Okay, you guys, there goes Jordan Mason, political consultant in South Dakota, and an example of somebody who's working with government and doing some really good things for the people of his state and for people everywhere as an example, and warning everyone, including legislators, about CBDCs coming up and the surveillance and control that they represent, trying to educate people not to uh, go along with that and work on uh, legislation for each state banning CBDCs as much as possible. This would be a really good time to do it. And even though um, most people don't have time to really get involved politically and run for office and things like that, uh, any of those activities of bringing honesty and truth and freedom ideas back to any local government offices, school boards, or uh, city councils, county boards of supervisors, state governments, that's all great. But at least uh, I think what he would promote is if you're aware of what's being done by government at all levels, to not fall for it you know, mindlessly like most of us do and start being an informed uh, electorate. And people talk to me all the time about, well, government's evil, government's the source of all bad stuff that's happening, and we should just have anarchy. And what they don't understand is that anarchy works great according to the consciousness of the population. And if the people are very highly evolved, which is really different than the state of the world right now, especially in America and places like that, that you don't need government when everybody has evolved to the point of seeing each other as part of their own family, expression of the same original being that they came from. They treat each other as they would like to be treated, respect each other's freedom, respect private property. All those things are automatic. But if you don't live in a world like that, then um, this is what the dilemma that the founders of America were working with, too. A lot of them were very um, hesitant to empower a federal government to do anything because they knew from past experience with kings and all kinds of other tyrants that government power is often uh, ends up in the hands of people who misuse it for terrible crimes done uh, with the immunity of the state and the power of the state. And yet they decided to form a federal government anyway. And the reason they did is because if you don't have one, you can't defend the borders of the country. You can't um, make sure that the people's rights are protected. And really the only reason that justifies the existence of a federal or state or local government is to protect the individual rights of the people, not the collective rights, which is just a scam, but the individual rights because everybody is an individual and nobody is a collective. The collective is the result. So if you protect everybody's individual freedom, then the freedom of the whole survives as well. And we have a situation where we're witnessing the end result or close to the end result of a government with power positions taken over by corrupt criminals on every level. And that needs to be reversed back. And Jordan, I think, would completely agree with that. And he's working for it in the state of South Dakota and elsewhere. And basically, the idea is freedom, as the founders of America explained in detail, 
is uh, not something you give up for so-called security or safety. You take freedom first and then work on your own consciousness, your own education, your own morality, your own ethics, your sense of connection to other people and to the source you all came from, and take care of each other because of that, not because you're forced to by a government that believes, that makes believe it's protecting you from anything. And we're right at a turning point in the U.S. now and in most of the world, especially in the U.S., where there's a a memory of individual freedom to some degree that the educational system is trying to stamp out. The criminal media that we've got is trying to obliterate it. And the rulers like uh, the president and other people are using uh, just decrees and executive orders and proxy agencies and all the all these other ways of just enacting things that become law without going through any uh, legislative process, Congress or anything like that. You create an agency like the CDC or join a world agency like WHO, which are complete criminal organizations under the UN, and they just tell you what to do. You've got kings and dictators even in a country that's supposed to be free. So trying to bring that back, CBDCs is just um, really an example of one of many attacks that comes out of illegitimate government, but there are many others all happening at the same time. And it really comes down to whether humanity can wake up in time not to fall for all that stuff and just walk off the edge of a cliff because of their being ordered to do it. Like in the uh, Nuremberg trials after World War II, the it was largely show trials, but for a few people, they did actually have to account for what they did. And when they said, um, we're just following orders, it wasn't our fault, the judges said, no, just following orders is not an excuse. And how does that apply to all of us now that are following orders to destroy ourselves, to fall for all these mind control programs, uh, to allow the mutilation and torture and kidnap of children by the state and by the medical system. I mean, we're all just following orders. We're taught to blindly obey authority like medical authorities and public health authorities, and they're running against the basic principle of individual rights and informed consent. So the the whole issue boils down to waking up the consciousness of the population and getting it back. And we're just encouraging you to educate yourself on all levels. You know, find out what all these criminal governments and corporations are doing and what your alternatives really are. A lot of people are working toward developing a parallel society, which many of our guests have talked about, based on freedom and mutual respect and appreciation for each other and mutual um, watching out for each other's real safety without... Um, the repressive measures that government does making believe it's safety. And at the, the most foundational level, look at yourself, because if you change your own level of consciousness, you become more aware, and there's a deeper level of consciousness that's even below that. And if you get that back, you find out that that inner guidance that we all have that shows us where we need to go and who we actually are, it's not dead. It's just dormant, even in the so-called bad people. And there's still a chance to wake it up as long as we haven't disappeared completely from this situation. 
So however you want to do that, educate yourself, take care of yourself, learn about health alternatives, learn about how to take care of yourself, because what you do and what you become is what affects everybody else around you and even at a distance. Um, that's what we're trying to do with Planetary Healing Club based on, you know, I, in fact, this question comes up, and I'll, I'll end in a minute because this is longer than we planned. Uh, we had one of the members saying, you know, I thought this was going to be healing ourselves and not healing the planet. And I'm saying they're one and the same. You know, if you want the hidden channel to really have an impact on the outside world from your family up to the rest of the human population and the rest of life on the planet, wake yourself up. That's a hidden key. And there's more power in that than you realize. So if you want to find out more about what we're doing with that, you're invited planetaryhealingclub.com but whatever you're doing just realize the value of who you are and getting that back waking yourself up is the way you wake up other people even though it may seem counterintuitive it's the most direct way to do it um, we're also starting to communicate with people who signed up on the mailing list and the easiest way to find that is go to the uh, page of lostartsradio.com, which is planetaryhealingclub.com. You can either sign up for a Planetary Healing Club there, or you just go slightly to the right of the Planetary Healing Club button, and you find where to sign up for the free mailing list, which is a green button. Do that, and we're starting to send out communications either in written or video form or both. And, uh, you know, my thought about that, how to use that, was that Planetary Healing Club is interactive, and we're really working intensively in that group with people who want to transform themselves as a means to affect the outside world in a good way. But what if they don't want to be in Planetary Healing Club and you just want the benefit of some of the same ideas? I'm going to take some of the, the key principles and put them into the free uh, communications that go out to people on that mailing list, and hopefully you can make use of that. So that's planetaryhealingclub.com and sign up for the free email list. And I think that's about it. We're going to keep doing um, interviews with people that are informative and can fit into your educational program at some point. And any ideas that you have of people you want um, interviewed that you think would be appropriate and informative for us, let me know, Richard, at lostartsradio.com. And what else? I think that's most of it. So thanks for being with us. I hope you have a good week. Don't undervalue yourself and uh, use your time well. We'll see you here next time. Why?